Let's have a word of prayer at this time before we get started into uh, our message this morning. So I invite you to to, uh, bow your heads and your hearts with me right now. Father in heaven, we are so very, very thankful for this holy Sabbath day, a day that you created to spend with us and to pour out blessings upon us, especially on this day, a day that we are to rest from our labors, uh, rest spiritually in Christ, uh, to minister to others, to be among the fellowship of the redeemed, and to lift each other up and to praise your holy name. We've come together to do that, Father. And we thank you so much for uh, this holy day that's been supplied for us uh, to gain that spiritual rest and that blessing. We know time is coming, Father, when when uh, the, the war will be at its height. And uh, we wish to be among the victorious in Jesus. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to be in our hearts and in our minds and help us to be the overcomers that Jesus has prayed for and that He has promised we'll receive eternal life. We ask, Father, humbly that You'll forgive us our sins. We think back on, especially this weekend, on on what uh, Jesus has done for us in dying on the cross. We know that this is the day, the Sabbath day, that he rested in the tomb, even while he was sleeping (laughs) and uh, was resurrected, giving us hope for the resurrection too, that we may be saved. Father, I pray that you give me the words to speak this morning as we talk about and study what it will take for us to be among the redeemed. I wish... And pray for the words to to speak, that they be your words and not my words. And that the hearts will be open to hear. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and for hearing this prayer. For we ask it in His blessed name. Amen. I have entitled this particular study, A Cross to Bear. A Cross to Bear. I don't think it's uh, news to you that we're in a very serious time of earth's history, friends. Isn't that true? The great controversy between Christ and Satan is is very soon to close, and we should be diligently searching our hearts. This is the time to do that, and asking ourselves if we are on the right side in this conflict. We should be asking ourselves if we are preparing correctly for what is coming ahead. And if we are not being prepared for eternal life, I'll tell you that we are then being prepared for eternal death. And I would ask, which preparation do you want? (laughs) I'd like to be prepared for eternal life. What about you, my friends? I've shared this quote with you on numerous occasions. It's in Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. COL, page 69, says Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of Himself in His church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people, then He will come to claim them as His own. She says that, she says here that Christ is waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting on us. He's waiting for His character to be perfectly reproduced in us. 
And so when I read that, it, it always pops into my mind, how does that happen? How is it reproduced? I want to share with you from the same book, page 384, Christ's Object Lessons, page 384. How does this happen? How, how can His character be reproduced in us? She says here, she says, The sanctification of the soul by the working of the Holy Spirit is the implanting of Christ's nature in humanity. Gospel religion is Christ in the life. Did you catch that? Gospel religion, the good news, is Christ in the life, our life. A living, active principle. It's not just a mental ascent. Saying, oh yeah, that's true. It's a living, active principle, she says here. It is the grace of Christ revealed in character and wrought out in what? Good works. The principles of the gospel cannot be disconnected from any department of practical life. So if the life of Jesus is to be, and character of Jesus is to be reproduced in us, that means we'll be doing the things that Jesus did. Not just going to church and saying amen, that's part of it, isn't it? <laughs> but in every part of our life, every facet. She says, it's an active principle. It's a living principle. And it's to... It's a part of our practical life. She goes on. She says, Every line of Christian experience and labor is to be a representation of the life of Christ. Love is the basis of godliness. Lost my place here. Where are we? Oh, love is the basis of godliness. Whatever the profession, no man has pure love to God unless he has unselfish love for his brother. But we can never come into possession of this spirit by trying to love others. This is a very important point, beloved. We can try and try and try ourselves, but we can't ever do that. It'll never happen. She says, We can never come into possession of this spirit by trying to love others. What is needed is the love of Christ in the heart. When self is merged in Christ, love springs forth spontaneously. And this is what Paul was saying when he said the love of Christ constraineth us. It pushes us. See? So when we uh, um, merge ourself in Christ, what's the natural result? Love will spring forth spontaneously, she says. And here's a very important point. And the question was, how do we get to that point where, where the character of Christ is reproduced in us? Notice this statement right here. She says, The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. So how do we reach that point? She says, We know we reach it that completeness, when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. When the sunshine of heaven fills the heart and is revealed in the countenance. We have a work to do, don't we? 
Or, let's say Christ is waiting on us. He's working on us still, isn't He? So when is the completeness of Christian character attained? When the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. How do we get to that point? And that's what I want to talk about at this time. How do we get to that point? Let's go back a couple thousand years. Jesus had just been released by Pilate to be scourged for the second time. You know, it's 40 lashes. 40 lashes with strips of leather that had rocks and steel in it. So when it would hit the flesh, it would sink into the flesh, and when pulled out, it would rip hunks of flesh out. And they wouldn't give 40 lashes because they wanted to show some mercy. So even though they were counting, they would stop at 39. They did this to Jesus twice. Most people, 80 to 90 percent, friends, of people who were scourged did not live through it. Jesus was scourged twice. And so here we are. He's been being scourged. Pilate let him go. He was going to be scourged the second time and then crucified. And in Matthew 27, I want to read verses 31 and 32. Very interesting thing here I want to point out. I want to look at with you. Matthew 27, verse 31. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Now notice verse 32. It says, And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Now there isn't much that's mentioned in the Gospels about Simon of Cyrene. Just that Jesus, being scourged twice, very weak, couldn't carry it, and they grabbed this man, Simon. Cyrene was a place in the northern part of Africa. They grabbed him to carry his cross. And, I, you know, every time I've read this, I never spent a lot of time on it, but I've always found this to be a very interesting development. Jesus is so weak from his ordeal that they have to compel a stranger to carry his cross for him. Now, most people would consider carrying a cross a rather terrible ordeal, wouldn't they? But I want you to notice that this particular case was different. Let me share uh, with you the account from, of this from the book, The Desire of Ages. So, The Desire of Ages, page 742. She says, The crowd that followed the Savior saw His weak and staggering steps, but they manifested no compassion. Remember, they're the ones that hollered out, We want Barabbas! We want Barabbas! And then they hollered out, Crucify Jesus! Crucify Him! Okay, Same crowd. They manifested no compassion. They saw how weak He was. He was staggering. She says they taunted and reviled Him because He could not carry the heavy cross. Again the burden was laid upon Him and again He fell, fainting to the ground. His persecutors saw that it was impossible for Him to carry His burden farther. It was impossible. 
he couldn't do it. They were puzzled to find anyone who would bear the humiliating load. The Jews themselves could not do this because the defilement would prevent them from keeping the Passover. None, even of the mob that followed him, would stoop to bear the cross. I notice this. says, At this time a stranger, Simon, a Cyrenian, coming in from the country, meets the throng. He hears the taunts and rubbledry of the crowd. He hears the words contemptuously repeated, Make way for the king of the Jews. He stops in astonishment at the scene. And notice this, she says, And as he expresses his compassion. He had compassion. The mob didn't have any compassion. But he had compassion and he expressed it. So because he expressed compassion for the Savior, they seize him and place the cross upon his shoulders. Think about that. You have a mob that doesn't show any compassion. They're not going to step in and do anything. Here comes a stranger in, and he does show some compassion. What's interesting here about Simon, as you read on, is that you'll find that he wasn't a believer. It says, Simon had heard of Jesus. His sons were believers in the Savior, but he himself was not a disciple. And yet, friends, he had compassion. The bearing of the cross to Calvary was a blessing to Simon, and he was ever after grateful for this providence. It led him to take upon himself the cross of Christ from choice. See, he didn't have a choice to to carry the actual cross of Jesus, but it led him to take that cross from choice later in his life and ever cheerfully stand beneath its burden. Isn't that remarkable? I want you to take note that it was the professed people of God that refused to carry the cross as it would have defiled them for the Passover. And yet here is the Passover Lamb of God in their midst. I also want you to notice that it was a stranger. Someone who was familiar with Jesus but was not a disciple. Yet he was full of compassion. And it was this person that carried the cross for Jesus. And friends, I want I want you to glean from this. There are many things we can glean from it. But I want you to glean from this that when you carry the cross for Christ, it becomes a blessing for you. So many times we look at a cross and we say, this is terrible. Nobody wants to do it. It's hard. Yet, it's a tremendous blessing. The people of the world, they hear the gospel, and as Paul says, it's foolishness to them. But to those to believe, those who have been moved with compassion, it's the greatest of blessings. And I believe that this is what Jesus is trying to teach each one of us. Uh, I mean, notice what he says in Luke 9, verse 23. He says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and then what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. 
that what Simon did? So friends, we have a cross to bear if we wish to be known as a Christian. And to be a Christian requires denying self and taking up the cross of Christ daily. Don't miss that it is to be done daily. There are many people today who who don't want to be called. They don't want to be called an enemy of God. Simon didn't want to be called an enemy of God. I mean, he, he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He was coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. He traveled from northern Africa to, to partake of it. And he comes upon this scene. So they don't want to be called an enemy of God, but they don't want to serve Him either. They want to be neutral. They want to be like Switzerland. You remember, you know, Switzerland has been neutral in like every war, especially like World War II. But I want to tell you, it's impossible to be neutral in the Christian religion. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there is a war going on against Christianity. The culture of today thinks it is enlightened. (laughs) And and that to believe in God shows oneself to be ignorant and backward. Isn't that true? They call Christians bigots, racists, homophobes, whatever you can imagine. That's the way it's always been, friends. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. It's true that in some places in the world today it is popular to call yourself a Christian. In New Testament times during the first century the Christian religion was not popular at all. In fact, it was very unpopular to be called a Christian. And that's going to be repeated. At least for the remnant. But one would wonder why the Christian religion was so unpopular and shunned by the masses. I mean, especially when Jesus did so much good. I mean, healing all manner of sickness and diseases. And he did this in public most of the time. But Jesus explained it this way in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Matthew 7, verse 13, he said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to where? Heaven? No, to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So I want you to notice that he said that most people would take the easy way and go down the broad road. That there would be only a few who would tackle the narrow way which seems more difficult and restricted. I think, you know, a lot of times when a majority of people, and especially in the world we're living in now, when a majority of people agree on something, I'm very skeptical of that. (laughs) It makes me pause because of what Jesus has said. 
in Matthew chapter 16. In verse 24, he said, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life, and here's the qualifier, friends, for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Is it worth it? We think as human beings we're in this world because of sin our, our first reaction is I want to do I want to go the path of least resistance. It's kind of like electricity, isn't it? <laughs> it travels the path of least resistance and that's the way we want to go. We, we shun those things. We think of a cross and we think hardship. We don't think blessing. We think of denying self and we go, oh, that's hard. And it is hard. But we don't think of the blessing, do we? And the statement that Jesus made, I mean, it was unpopular, and still today, we see it. It's not desired by the masses who proclaim to be Christian. Self-denial is not popular. But Jesus said not that not only are you to deny yourself, but also you are to take up your cross and follow Him. I mean, think about that, the cross. The cross was an instrument of torture and cruelty and ignominy. Or, you know, public shame, disgrace. So, our selfishness, our self, revolts at that thought of taking up a cross. But Jesus says we all have a cross to bear if we're to reproduce His character in us. Paul explained what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It's found in Galatians 5 verse 24. He says, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. What have they done? They've crucified the flesh. They have borne a cross, haven't they? And then he goes on, or, you know, if you back up a few verses actually, he explains what it means. Verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, Emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. It's a pretty long list, isn't it? He says, Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in the past time, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So those who practice, you see, friends, the works of the flesh as they're outlined there by Paul. He says, will not inherit the kingdom of God, but those that are Christ's have crucified that. They've crucified those evil passions and desires of the flesh. They've crucified their sinful nature. And that's what it means. 
to bear a cross, to take up your cross. It means to crucify the sinful nature or the flesh. Now there's something else that's involved in taking up your cross. And Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 10. And those of us who weren't born into a family that were Christians and and uh, went to church and had the Bible in their home and, and read it and such, I think can relate to this much more than those of us who who were born without any religion. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, we'll begin there, He says, Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross. You catch this? He that doesn't bear a cross, he says, and falleth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Don't you notice what Jesus is saying here? He's... He's talking about the conflict that will occur in people's families because of the Christian religion. That's what he said. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. And I will tell you, I've experienced that. I can't say that all of us have. I can only speak for myself. It's hard on the families, isn't it? Someone gives themselves to Jesus and the rest of the family doesn't want anything to do with Him, there is a conflict, friends. And this is what Jesus was saying. When you pick up a cross and begin to bear that cross and follow Jesus, the world is going to hate you. And if your family members aren't doing the same, they're going to hate you. There's going to be enmity. Remember what... Remember what the Lord told the serpent there in the garden? He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Remember? What does enmity mean? Hatred. Hatred. He's going to put a hatred there. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see in our culture and around the world today, that Christians are being persecuted. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But you notice something that Paul said too. And we've covered this. This is a familiar scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He said, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Remember, Jesus was saying, you know, if if you pick up the cross, you bear it, and you follow me, what is, the, what is it you're actually doing? You're denying self, right? 
what is involved in that denying of self. Paul's reiterating here, he says, when you begin to follow Jesus and you're, you're bearing a cross, you are the temple of God and He's dwelling in you. If you defile it, what's going to happen? If you continue to, without repentance, you will be destroyed. You know, if we use something or we eat something or we watch something or hear something that is destroying our body and we knowingly are doing that, then we must crucify that craving, see? And stop doing it if we would be a Christian. That's a part of that process that Jesus is working on in us so that we may reflect His character. We are to deny ourselves those carnal cravings and desires and we do this how? By faith, don't we? And let me tell you, friends, faith is a verb. (laughs) It's to be exercised. And exercising faith, as I mentioned before, it's not just having a mental assent that God exists, but it is putting trust in God and acting upon that trust. As we read earlier, it's to be a living principle lived out in our life. Our first reaction from self is to shy away from the cross, to shy away from denying our selfish natures and, and giving in to them. That's, that's what self wants to do. Self will not kill self. <laughs> we can't do it ourself. See? I'll get to that in a moment. But there are many promises for those who choose to deny themselves who choose to lift up their cross, follow Jesus. Here's one, John 15, verse 11. Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you that that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Doesn't that sound almost like an oxymoron? Do you know that bearing a cross will bring you joy? Did Jesus want to suffer? Want to die on that cross? Think about that. His humanity shied away, just like our humanity. We're humans, we, we want to shy away. But He said, nevertheless what? Not my will, but thine be done. Isn't that what He said? Bearing a cross will bring you joy. Jesus, He also promises peace, doesn't He? In John 14, 27, He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Is that remarkable? In John 16, verse 32, he said, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer, have peace, joy, in denying self and carrying a cross? Just doesn't sound right, does it? (laughs) But love and joy and peace are promised to all of Jesus' followers right now in the present life. 
However, in in addition to the promises related to this present life, he's also made promises for the future life. And concerning those who who've taken up their cross and followed him, in Matthew 19, verse 29, he said, And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) But He's promising those things here and in the future. Jesus Christ has made wonderful promises to those who follow Him and, and His Word is truth on which we can depend, my friends. Now there's something that's very important to understand since we've been talking about the cross and about the need uh, for the Christian to, to take up his cross follow Jesus. There's something to understand for we will receive salvation. I want you to know that, and it's important to understand, that God does not make the crosses. God has never made the cross. And it was never something that He intended that any human being should ever have to bear. The Bible is very clear that God does not tempt anyone, friends. Notice what James said in James 1 and verse 13. He said, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And if you move down to verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The crosses that we bear in this world are the result of inherited and cultivated sin, beloved. I mean, consider the the drunk person, for example, or the addict. It's not God's desire for him to be that way. But because of the subtle influence of the world and the devil and his own sinful nature, he's fallen into an evil habit. And it's become an addiction. And, and neither is there anything burdensome or grievous about God's commandments. In 1 John 5, 3, John tells us, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous, which means burdensome. They're not a burden to us. The cross. The cross in the family occurs when a Christian has a desire to keep all of God's commandments and because of the other members of the family that they don't share that same conviction, what happens is that they're inspired by Satan to oppose them or her because they love the world. They don't love God. But there's no cross in the commandments themselves. Because commandments of God are not grievous. They're not burdensome. I mean, the world has chosen to make God's rest day a common work day. And this is something that's happened because the world at present is being ruled mainly by the devil. And when a person chooses to follow God and obey Him and follow Him in obedience to all of His commandments, that person will be opposed by the world and by the devil. 
Now the question might be asked, is it possible to be saved without having opposition? What do you think? What does the Bible tell us? The Bible says very clearly, friends, that that's not possible. It's not possible to be saved without any opposition. We need to, we need to get settled on that. You notice what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. So although God doesn't create any of our crosses and it is not His will for us to have any, the devil will always oppose anyone who chooses to follow the Lord. And that makes it impossible to follow the Lord without having any opposition. I go back to Genesis 3.15. God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And I want you to understand, beloved, if you're not willing to endure opposition, then you cannot be saved. But you're not enduring it of yourself. See, Matthew 18.7, Jesus said, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. That is, to the man who, who by precept or example leads others into sin. Woe to him. What happens? We see God so merciful and loving. He prepares us for the offenses that have to come. And He gives many promises to those who who suffer persecution or or who go through trouble or trial because they have chosen to follow Him. That's the process of perfecting our character. That's what Jesus came here and showed us. Now notice what the Apostle Paul said about this in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. He said, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That, that phrase there, make a way to escape. A way to escape in the original means a way out. And this way out is not a way to avoid the temptation, but a way out of falling into sin, of being overcome by the temptation. So at the same time that God permits the trial or temptation to come, He will also have in readiness the means whereby we may gain the victory and escape from committing the sin. Let me share this with you. It's from the book God's Amazing Grace, devotional, page 254. It says, The strongest temptation cannot excuse sin. However great the pressure brought to bear upon the soul, transgression is our own act. You can't say the devil made me do it. 
It is not in the power of earth or hell to compel anyone to do evil. Satan attacks us at our weak points, but we need not be overcome. However severe or unexpected the assault, God has provided help for us, and in His strength we may conquer. In our own strength, friends, we will fail. Here's another one from the book The Upward Look, page 325. Talking about how how do we how is that character of Jesus reproduced in us? We're finding that we have a cross to bear. We need to deny self and, and we have a cross to bear. She says here in Upward Look, page 325, she says, As we separate from the world and its customs, we shall meet with the displeasure of worldlings. Have you experienced that yet? You should. The world hated the one who was the very embodiment of virtue because he was better than they were. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If our ways please God, the world will hate us. If the majesty of heaven came to this world and endured a life of humiliation and a death of shame, why should we shrink back because obedience involves a cross? If he was persecuted, can we expect better treatment? I point you to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will comfort and sustain all who come to him for help. Because the cross involves following Jesus up the narrow way, do not ever get the idea that there are no hardships, friends, for those who choose the wide, easy road of the world. There's hardships for everyone. In fact, there's no easy way, really. There's pain and suffering for for the worldly person too, and he will be forced to endure it, but the, the difference is he'll be forced to endure it without the promise of Jesus when he said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Those who choose not to follow Jesus will not avoid pain and suffering. The Bible says in Proverbs 13.15 that the way of transgressors is hard. And in Isaiah 57.21 it says, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. But we read what? Jesus has given us promises. When you, you bear a cross, you'll have joy. You'll have peace. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen that there are two ways to choose to go. Remember, He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to the destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There is a narrow way, and there is a broad way, isn't there? And only a few people will choose the narrow way, for it's restricted. It's what narrow means. But most people will go down the broad road because that way seems easier. It does not require any self-denial. It doesn't require a cross to bear. And on that road, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. 
disregarding the Lord's instruction, but there are consequences to our decisions, no matter which path you take. In Psalms 37, verse 37, David said, Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together, the end of the wicked shall be cut off. So there are two paths. One is a narrow path where you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And what are the results of that? Well, even along that path, you're going to experience joy and peace. You're going to experience the comfort of the presence of Jesus on your journey. And and at the end of the path, you're going to have everlasting life. The other path The one that Jesus said most people would choose is the broad path. It begins with ease and pleasure, with no self-denial. But I want to tell you something, in case you didn't figure it out, Satan is a cruel, hard taskmaster. And just around the corner, out of sight, the path gets harder and harder as you go along. And the farther you travel on that road, makes it more difficult to make a U-turn. And that path involves sickness and heartache and despair, and in the end... Not eternal life, but eternal death. Concerning the future for those who choose to go up the narrow way, this is what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. He said, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So we can experience those things here while traveling the narrow path. But there are many promises for the future. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet outlines the future reward of the righteous. I mean, in chapters 11 and and 35, and again in chapter 65, he outlines the wonderful future for God's children, a place where there's no sickness or death or trouble of any kind. And even the Apostle John describes the future in such ways in Revelation 21. Verse 1, he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I saw, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared how? As a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, what's God going to do? Verse 4, he says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, nor neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And friends, that is the wonderful, exciting, and glorious future that is in store for those who choose to go up the narrow way, to take up their cross, to follow Jesus. But unfortunately, most of the people in the world today are comfortable traveling on the broad road. 
the Bible clearly predicts over and over that the majority of people in the world will be on Satan's side of the question at the end. Revelation 13 verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And in the next verse it says that they worshipped it. And that, of course, is contrary to the law of God, the second commandment. But that is what most of the world will be doing. It says, All the world wondered or was astonished, and they followed the beast, that is the Antichrist, and worshipped it. Then in Revelation 13 and verse 14, concerning the beast that comes from the land, it says, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by his sword and did live. And again in Revelation 16, and this is so important, friends, that the prophet emphasizes it over and over again in the last half of the book of Revelation that most of the world will be deceived and will go down the broad road at the end. Notice Revelation 16, verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The whole world will be deceived, beloved. And if you're following Christ, the world hates you. Will we be of the world or of God? And this is an incredible scenario, and this truth is repeated throughout Revelation. Chapters 12, 13, 16, 17, 18, again in chapter 19. It's repeated. God doesn't just repeat for no reason. He wants us to understand what we're getting into. What's coming. Over and over again in the last half of the book of Revelation, it says that in the last days the whole world will choose to go down that broad road. They're not going to choose to deny self. They're not going to choose to carry a cross. They're not going to choose to follow Jesus. But there is going to be a group that does. Very few people. And that Bible calls them the remnant. And I have to tell you, I mean, I have a vivid imagination, but it's hard to imagine that the whole world will be deceived. And they will persecute and oppose God's people. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. The remnant will be denied the ability to buy and sell because of an effort to force them to receive that mark of Antichrist, that mark that will mark them for destruction, for eternal destruction. The sign that distinguishes God's children in the last days, those who choose to be on God's side of the question, is found in Revelation 14, 12. We know what that says, don't we? After describing the mark of the beast, the image to the beast, those worshipping it, 
and the warning not to do that, it identifies who God's children are during this time. The Bible says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And friends, I will tell you, the only way that you can deny yourself, the only way that you can bear a cross, is that you have the faith of Jesus. And I'll tell you that the sign that you are God's child has always been the same since the beginning of time. It is the sign of obedience. <laughs> A determination to obey God and follow Him in, in doing His will. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10, it tells what God promises His followers. What God promises His children through the new covenant. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. You want to do a very good study. Study the first five verses of chapter 14 in the book of Revelation in comparison to what's being said here in Hebrews 8.10. What God wants to do, when He says He writes His laws, He's writing His character into our mind and heart, friends. So under the new covenant, men's hearts and minds are changed. And men do right, not by their own strength, but because Christ dwells in the heart, living out His life in them. So they're born of the Spirit. And they bear the fruits of the Spirit. And that change can only be affected by divine power. Let me tell you, God can only put His law in the hearts of His followers with their consent and cooperation. It's the devil who uses coercion. As I close up here, I want to share this with you. This is from the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 142. We have to give God consent, friends. And then He gives us the, the supernatural power to be the overcomers, to have that character of Christ. Notice what she says here. She says, Our will is not to be forced into cooperation with divine agencies, but it must be voluntarily submitted. Were it possible to force upon you with a hundredfold greater intensity the influence of the Spirit of God, it would not make you a Christian, a fit subject for heaven. The stronghold of Satan would not be broken. The will must be placed on the side of God's will. You are not able of yourself to bring your purposes and desires and inclinations into submission to the will of God, but if you are willing to be made willing, God will accomplish the work for you. We have to be willing to be made willing. And that's the choice that we make. And we do have a choice to make. Will we choose the broad path? Or will we choose to bear the cross and take the narrow way? 
Now, this is a daily decision. Some are in the valley of decision and, and self overpowers them because the way's hard. I see this time and time again. I've experienced it myself. Going on in the book, The Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, this is on page 143. She says, But many are attracted by the beauty of Christ and the glory of heaven, who yet shrink from the conditions by which alone these can become their own. There are many in the Broadway who are not fully satisfied with the path in which they walk. They long to break from the slavery of sin, and in their own strength they seek to make a stand against their sinful practices. They look toward the narrow way and the straight gate, but selfish pleasure, love of the world, pride, unsanctified ambition place a barrier between them and the Savior. To renounce their own will Their chosen objects of affection or pursuit requires a sacrifice at which they hesitate and falter and turn back. Many will seek to enter in and shall not be able, Luke 13.24. They desire the good. They make some effort to obtain it, but they do not choose it. They have not a settled purpose to secure it at the cost of all things. The only hope for us. When I read things like that, that really grabs my attention. The only hope for us, if we would overcome, is to unite our will to God's will and work in cooperation with Him, hour by hour and day by day. Did you notice that, friends? Hour by hour and day by day we're to unite our will to God's will. We are to work in cooperation with Him as we bear the cross. And here's another quote from Christ's Object Lessons, page 333. And never forget this statement. I've shared it with you numerous times. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. That means all-powerful. Whatever is to be done at His command may be accomplished in His strength. All His biddings are enablings. God does not tell us to do something and not give us the power to do it. We want to have a character like Jesus. We want His character reproduced in us. And that's where it starts and then to our families, and then to the church, and that's what Jesus is waiting on. That's what He's working on. Are we going to cooperate with Him? The world today, friends, is in the process of rejecting God's last warning message. And people are preparing to receive the mark of the beast. It's crushing. It's crushing to see it happen. But the second coming of Christ will be completely different than the first coming. You know that, right? At His first advent, Jesus came as a sin-bearer to bear the sins of the world. This is what we remember back, especially on this weekend. But at His second coming, this is not His mission. He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming to judge the world. And when He comes, the whole world will be divided into two camps. Those who have the seal of loyalty, the seal of God that you read about in Revelation 7, 
and those who have the mark of the beast, the mark of Antichrist, spoken of in Revelation 13 and 14. And those who have the seal of God will be those who keep His commandments and have the faith of Jesus. And these will be those who overcame by bearing the cross of Christ. My question for you to consider is, my close friends, will we gain the blessing that Simon the Serene gained when he bore Christ's cross? Or will we be lost for eternity? I want to encourage you to bear the cross of Jesus. You'll never regret it. Never. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we thank you so much for Jesus and his example. Every moment of his life is an example to us. Father, we see that there are things that we need to deny. There is a cross for us to bear. We see the promises that you've given to each one of us who choose to cooperate, who choose to be made willing, who choose to have our will combined with yours to give us the strength, the courage to overcome. We wish to be those who travel the narrow way. So we pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us with power that we may be an example to our families, to our neighbors, to the world, that not only does Jesus live, and that Jesus is the truth and He is love, but they can be saved by accepting that. Please continue to be with us this Sabbath day and bless us as You've promised, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is. And we pray this from grateful hearts in His name. Amen.